Good morning. Welcome to the Springs. How's everyone doing? All right. My name is Pastor Alberto, and I have the honor and privilege to lead this church alongside our uh, awesome team of elders. Uh, really excited to continue our series through the book of James. Uh, if you're joining us, we've been making our, for the first time, if you're joining us, we've been making our way through the book of James, really unpacking this idea uh, that, that we're saved by faith alone, but our faith doesn't remain alone, as, as one theologian said. Uh, rather, uh, our faith, when it's internalized inside of our hearts, it's expressed through works. Good works, uh, works that reveal the nature and attributes and character of God. And and one of the the litmus tests, one of the good ways to to gauge whether faith is in your heart is is to really examine uh, your life of of works or your life of love. Are you reflecting the character and nature of Jesus? Uh, Not just in a religious setting, not just in the setting where you come to church on Sunday and you show up to growth group, but what does faith look like when it's expressed in your work uh, your nine to five? Or what does it look like when you're walking through the grocery store? What does it look like in the way that you parent and shepherd your children? You see, faith awakens us not just to be in a relationship with God, but it awakens us to live like God, to live the way Jesus lived out on earth as it is in heaven. And so we have made our way through chapter one. Congratulations, you did it. Now we are in chapter two, James chapter two, and we're going to look at verses one through Nine. So it is uh, our tradition here to honor the word of God by standing to our feet as we read. So I want to invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. If you're joining us online, I invite you, wherever you find yourself, uh, to take a moment and pause and stand with me as we read God's word together. James chapter 2, verse 1. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there uh, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 5, listen. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the one who oppress you uh, and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated as we pray. Lord, we come in Jesus' name. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would go before us and prepare our heart, our mind, our ears, our soul, to receive this word. Uh, It seems like um, the pace, as Paul mentioned, the pace of life is beginning to increase and it seems kind of overwhelming to try to catch up. I pray that you would come and bring peace. Lord, I pray that you would come and, and awaken us to see you in this word. And as James called us to, let us not just receive this word, but let us put it into practice. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So one of the implications uh, when we enter into a relationship with God that we see is, is when we come in relationship with Jesus, it, it's not just that I'm in a relationship with God and then I'm good. It's not this isolated event of coming to faith in Christ and now you can say that you're in a relationship with God. Rather, as we mentioned earlier, this relationship expresses itself through good works. And one of the implications of entering into a relationship with God is that we're called to represent him and his character. When you enter into a relationship with God, you are called to represent him and his character. Uh, When you enter into a relationship with your work or your career, you're called to be a representative of that job. And so you go to work with your uniform or with your name tag and you represent those values of your place of work. Uh, If you work at Chick-fil-A, you say, my pleasure. Uh, Every time somebody says, thank you, and you're identified with that uniform, whether you work in the bank, maybe uh, your job has called you to represent a certain type of value. You're called to be a representative of that place of work. And it's no different when you enter into a relationship with God. You are called to represent not only his character, but his kingdom. And so what are the things that we're called to represent? One is the holiness of God. Uh, In other words, God is separate from all sin. Therefore, when we're called into a relationship with God, we're called to separate ourselves from sin to the best of our ability, empowered by the Spirit. In other words, we're called to represent the character of God as we pursue Jesus in a relationship with him because we stop pursuing relationship with sin or the things that Jesus died for. We're called to reflect his holiness. As 1 Peter says in chapter 1, 15 through 17, you shall be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. God demands holiness so we can remain in a flourishing relationship with him. When God demands holiness from your life, it's not to restrict you. It's not to get you in this submissive position where he's this begrudging authority over your life. When he demands holiness from you, it's because he knows that the best place for you to flourish and grow and experience that quality of eternal life is a place that's separate from practicing sin in your life. Why? Because sin comes and brings death. And destruction. So we're called to reflect the holiness of God. Uh, what else are we called to reflect? We're called to represent the love of God. Uh, this is uh, where uh, we see God has loved us unconditionally, uh, where God has made this rugged commitment to us uh, to willfully love us into all that He's called us to be. Uh, where maybe apart from God, dead in sin, we experience a a life of hate and destruction. Now we're called to uh, live and represent God's kingdom of love. And the list goes on. Uh, The way that God executes and represents justice, we're called to partner with God and the gospel's vision for justice as we represent him. Now, where am I going with this? All this to say is that there is one aspect of God's character that we have cosmically failed to represent. There is one aspect of God's character that when we fail to live this out, it leads to one specific sin. And this sin is so elusive, it's so deadly that it creates all sorts of injustices. This sin is actually the root of racism and all sorts of prejudiced lifestyles. This sin is actually the root for church splits and exclusive friend groups. 
This sin leads to all sorts of discrimination, to name a few. And what is this sin called? The sin of partiality. The sin of partiality. Or what, James, or what some translations call the sin of favoritism. So what makes this so deadly and, and so elusive? Uh, one pastor says that, that partiality uh, or favoritism dresses in all the clothes that love normally wears. Partiality, favoritism, dresses in all the clothes that love normally wears. Uh, it's a failure to love. It's a counterfeit love. You see, Jesus created uh, this sort of love that he pursued us with and he awakens us to love others. And partiality, favoritism, passes as love and is the way the world loves one another. You see, we're called to love people the way that Jesus has called us to love. Uh, to, to love in, in, in our best, to the best of our ability in this sort of unconditional way that isn't based on any sort of barriers or preferences. But partiality, favoritism, is loving people who we think deserve it. Loving people who agree with us or who sort of check off the boxes of our lifestyle. Loving people who you like. And you see, faith moves us towards loving others the way that Jesus did. Partiality moves us towards loving people we like where Jesus calls us to, to love our neighbors. And who's your neighbor? Every single person that God has placed in your path. Partiality says, I'm only gonna love the neighbors that I like. I'm only gonna love the neighbors that agree with me. I'm only gonna love the people that share my lifestyle. And James says in, in, in verse eight, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and you are doing well. Now, now James is taking this from his older brother, Jesus, who said this in the Sermon on the Mount, to fulfill the law is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But he goes on to verse nine and says, if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, you are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. So when James says, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, uh, I've said this before and it's important to, to sort of reference again because we need to remember because we forget. When James is saying, love your neighbor as yourself, he's not talking about self-esteem. Uh, he, he, he's not talking about self-love. Uh, and I know sometimes in, in, in this cultural moment, it's all about self-esteem. It's all about self-love. And, and what can often be misinterpreted with this text is saying something like this. How can I love somebody else if I don't know how to love myself first? You see, James isn't talking about that and neither was Jesus. You, you see, Jesus is already assuming that you love yourself. Jesus isn't talking about self-esteem. Rather, he's talking about having this balanced view of yourself. You see, if you try to preface your love for others by how well you love yourself, you'll never love others because you'll never be satisfied with how you love yourself. There'll always be something else to come up that you're going to hold against yourself and begin to audit your life by and saying, man, I still have got this wrong. You see, we all love ourselves. There's no question about that. You see, the issue that the Bible highlights is not hatred of self, it's love of self. 
And that's what leads us to worship all sorts of idols and and pursue all sorts of lifestyle that stand against the lifestyle that God has granted for us. We don't hate ourselves, we love ourselves. When we have a great moment of, of confidence and joy and we're really feeling ourselves, we call that high self-esteem. It's, it, it's high confidence. When we have low self-esteem and we're not really feeling that great about ourselves, we, we call it self-loathing. You see, we all love ourselves just depending on the day it fluctuates. And, and James isn't calling us to, to base our love for others on how much we feel good about ourselves. Rather, self, rather this type of loving yourself that Jesus is calling to is one that looks like this. Consider how you take yourself into consideration. Consider how you care for yourself. You always make sure that you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, if that's your thing. Uh, You make sure that you get a good night's sleep. Uh, You you go out of your way to pursue the things that bring you joy. Uh, You work to provide for yourself financially so that you can be well off. Uh, you, you, You go do fun things because that gives you pleasure. We all love ourselves and we all care for ourselves. Now, James is saying with the same energy that you do that for yourself, do it for others. The same way that when you're hungry, you make sure to go eat. If you see somebody that is going hungry, expend that same amount of energy to care for their needs. Uh, The same way that you make sure that you have paid your light bill so that you have running electricity and you have a home that's suitable for adequate living, go above and beyond and meet the needs of other people in the same way that you care for yourself. And James says that when you are doing that, you're fulfilling this law of love because you're moving beyond selfishness to a life of selflessness that Jesus has called us to. You see, we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves, taking into consideration the way that you make provisions for yourself, the way you make time to eat, sleep, the list goes on, and now do that for others. I love what Scott McKnight says. This is one of my favorite quotes. Love is a rugged commitment. To be with someone as someone who is for that person's good and love them into God's formative purposes. That love is this rugged commitment. Rugged because when you commit to loving somebody, it's not gonna be a smooth, easy road. There's bumps in the road. It's rugged, it's difficult, but you're committed to that person and you're going to love that person for their good as God has loved them and love them into all that God's called them to be. You see, God shows no partiality. There are no favorites with God. Uh, God expresses compassion, equity, and justice, not only to the people who've entered into relationship with him, but the entire human race. There is no favoritism. There is no prejudice. There is no discrimination with God. So what we're going to do for the next few moments is we're just going to spend the the rest of our time together in verse 1 and sort of unpacking some ideas that come up in that verse. So verse 1, my brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So James says, show no partiality. Now, what's interesting about this word in the Greek is that the early Christians were really creative about forming these words. And this is the first time that we see this word uh, described like this, because it literally means to receive someone according to their face. 
to receive someone according to their face. And to receive the face, uh, as that sort of Greek idiom uh, is, is to make judgments, distinctions, or draw a conclusion about someone based solely on their external considerations. To receive the face is to make judgments, distinctions, or draw a conclusion about someone based solely on external considerations. So, so how does this happen? Well, with, with people, we evaluate a person's worth. And we judge them before getting to know them or understanding their story. And how is this practiced? Uh, this is practiced when we make judgment about a person's character on external things. Maybe their accent. Maybe their clothing or lifestyle their gender, their height, uh, their skin color, their education, economic differences. And then we treat people, we treat that person as if our judgment is true. That is the sin of partiality. And the reason why this is a sin is because it's not consistent with God's character. You see, the God of the Bible shows no favorites and he's not a prejudiced God. Deuteronomy 10.17 says that for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. And remember, we're called to represent God. So when we display God's love and show no favoritism, but live generously, others will see God's heart through the way we represent him. But what kind of God are you representing through your lifestyle? Through the way that you welcome other people into your lives? Who is being welcomed into your life? Is it only people that agree with you, that look like you, that think like you? Or are you extending yourself to love your neighbor, which is all the people that God has placed in your life, not just the ones that you like? You see, we are all guilty of practicing the sin of partiality. We all make these assumptions, these prejudiced biases in our mind uh, based off of people's skin color and identity. This never works with me, by the way. Uh, it always works with somebody else. So I'm just going to switch here before it keeps popping, uh, and we'll keep going. Um, we all... being practiced in the technological realm. Um, so we, we all do this. Um, and, and we even do this with the things of God. Uh, we're partial towards the word of God. What does this mean? We only read and practice the things that we like. We, we only give attention to the things that we prefer. By, by default, we're neglecting other things. So we like the parts of Scripture uh, that, that, that say that God will generously meet all of our needs, but we dislike the part of Scriptures when he calls us to meet the needs of others. Uh, we, we like the parts uh, of Scriptures that, 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 that say that, that, that God will bless us with, 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 with community or with family or with relationships, but we hate extending ourselves and, and living that life of love with others. We are partial towards the Word of God when we only read and we only practice the things that we like. We like the parts of Scripture that calls us and, and tells us that we're identified with Christ and that God loves us greatly and that he showers grace upon grace upon grace. But we hate those parts of Scripture when he calls us to submit our sexual desires to the Lordship of Christ and not satisfy the pleasures of the flesh. We're partial with people 
and we're also partial towards God. We only give attention to the things that we prefer, neglecting sexual wholeness, repentance, generosity, to name a few. And the scriptures is placing a complete prohibition on favoritism. Now listen, I'm not saying that you're not allowed to have favorites. You you can still have your your favorite flavor of ice cream. You can still have your your favorite football team, your, your favorite pair of shoes, your favorite movies. The problem arises when that favorite becomes a barrier to living the life of love that God has called you to. When you let your favorite football team become uh, the metric by which you allow people into your life. I'm not going to allow any, you know, cowboy fans into my life because they're the absolute worst. You are committing the sin of partiality. But you can still have a favorite football team. And so how this is practiced in in the book of James is that we see there's the the, rich group of people and a poor group of people. And it's causing so many uh, divides in this early church where we see the early Christians who are being oppressed uh, by by the, the, the forces in power in Jerusalem where there was so much economic indifferences and, and injustices, where landlords were literally evicting people who were Christians, and Christians weren't allowed to go shop in grocery stores because they were being identified with Christ, we see a few group of Christians begin to experience an incredible amount of suffering, an incredible amount of poverty, feeling so powerless, so they are hoping that if, if, if they give their attention to those in power, their lifestyle would change. So they begin to prefer the rich, those who have power. They begin to neglect the poor and disassociate and push them even further to the margins of society. And they only give attention to those who think will increase the quality of their life. And and this is so contrary to God. Because God within himself is not divided. He is perfectly unified within himself, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And though there are differences in roles, there are no differences in division. There is no separation. God is completely unified within himself, and he causes us to live out that same unity amongst one another. And this favoritism, this partiality, uh, making conclusions about people based on external considerations is so inconsistent with the faith because it is inconsistent with the one Jesus Christ who came to break down every single barrier of hostility. Ephesians 2 says every single barrier of nationality, class, race, gender, and religion. Christ died to reconcile us to God vertically and reconcile us to one another horizontally. So that love would be the driving force and the sustaining force for our reconciliation towards one another. You see, Jesus came and died, thus removing every single barrier of hostility and division. So that you and I can be made one as God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. And when we practice favoritism, when we practice partiality, we are raising up those barriers that Christ has died to tear down. When we only let people into our lives based on how they vote, who they voted for, or how they don't vote, we are, resur- we, we are resurrecting, uh, reinstituting those barriers that Jesus died to tear down. When we only love people who look like us or think like us, we are raising up those barriers that Jesus has died to tear down. In other words, faith and favoritism cannot coexist. Faith 
and favoritism cannot coexist. James says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by definition, faith is exclusive allegiance and trust to Jesus. Uh, Faith is this exclusive commitment to Jesus and to no one else and living in such a way that we completely depend on him in everything that we do. It's this sort of language that Jesus uses on in the Sermon on the Mount when he says you can't serve God and money. You can't trust God and money uh, for you'll either serve one or reject the other. In the same way, our faith in Jesus is an exclusive commitment to Jesus as our Lord and Savior and submitting our lives to represent him and his kingdom. So when we have faith in Jesus, we cannot have favorites because we are following Jesus's lifestyle. We are submitting to his rule and reign. And James goes on to say, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is an incredible verse right here. Uh, There's about four different uh, meanings about what this word glory can mean, but most commentators agree that this word here is the same word that we see in the Old Testament called Shekinah, the localized presence of God, uh, the Shekinah glory. Uh, It was when God's presence would come and and manifest itself manifests itself in a specific time at a specific place tangibly where people would experience the glory of God. Um, And and this word comes from two different Hebrew words, uh, shikan, which means to dwell, and mishkan, which means tabernacle or tent. So this refers to God's presence and how the Old Testament people would experience God's presence. God's presence would come and flood the tent through cloud and fire. God's presence would come and fill the temple and the people of God would visibly see God's presence, visibly see God's glory. And it was incredible. In Exodus, we read about Moses being instructed uh, by God to build a sanctuary uh, at Mount Sinai where God's presence would literally come and dwell in and over the tabernacle, this, this tent structure for worship. In the Old Testament, there are other experiences where God's tangible presence, his glory would come and fill the temple and dwell among the people. Now, in the New Testament, the presence of God in the temple is compared to the presence of God in Jesus Christ. This is incredible because John chapter 114 uses sort of the same words. He says that the divine word became flesh and dwelled among us. The idea here is that just as God had previously come in the Old Testament to dwell in the tabernacle, the divine word, the person of Christ, has now come to dwell in human flesh. In other words, Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is the Shekinah glory, the localized presence and manifestation of God's incredible glory. Now, why does this detail about glory matter? You see, this group of people that we see in the first century church, the church that James pastored, cared more about their own glory than the glory of the Lord. And this is where the sin of partiality comes from. This is where we see favoritism practiced. Because James calls us to selfless living 
This group of people were giving themselves over to selfish living, seeking to elevate their status, their word, uh, worth, seeking to uh, find a quality of life that satisfied them, seeking their own glory. And we all do this. Uh, we all, in one way or another, are seeking glory. And, and it comes in, in a variety of ways. Maybe we have these desires to become great and rich and famous, and we want to have this sort of weighty lifestyle that just yells glory. Maybe we're seeking glory through uh, uh, trying to just make enough money to, to make ends meet so that we can have a sort of lifestyle that makes us comfortable um, and totally neglects the way that God has called us to live. Maybe it's amassing an incredible amount of uh, uh, social media followers. Maybe it's making a name for yourself in one way or another. When our lives aren't submitted to the Lordship of Christ and giving Jesus glory, we will inevitably pursue lives that try to elevate our own glory. We want to show people that we're significant. We want to show people that we have worth and value. We want to show people and prove them wrong. I told you I will make it. Look at me now. When we pursue our own glory, we yell lives that say, look at me now. Look who I've become. Whether we do it aggressively and out loud or we do it in such a passive way where we want to show people passively how much we've accomplished in the mass. We all live lives that want to pursue our own glory. In this group of people, they cared more about their own glory, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, because they were desperately trying to find comfort and provision and life, not in the Lord Jesus Christ, but in people who were rich and wealthy and well-off that they thought could give them the quality of life that they desperately wanted. Can we just, uh, you know, schmooze you and show you that we love you and bless you and, and here's a good seat at the table and give you the attention and make you smile and laugh all, all your jokes uh, so that you know you can bless us so that so that we can be in right standing with you because if we're with the good crowd then we can have the good life and and we all do this what does this look like in in our current setting maybe you're not trying to woo somebody with money but we all pursue our own glory and it sometimes looks like caring more about your own comfort caring more about your comfort than the needs of those hurting in your city you're pursuing your own glory. Caring more about your comfort so you avoid hard conversations about reconciliation, about racism and repentance because you're more concerned with your own image. Caring more about your comfort that you avoid the people that Jesus has died for and has called you to love. Because to your standards, they're weird. They're awkward, they're different than you, yet they're image bearers that Jesus has died for. It's caring more about your image than the image of Jesus, caring more about your status and how people perceive you and and, and the level of significance and value that you want to display. Maybe caring more about your wealth and how much money you have so you can accomplish whatever goals you have set. Maybe caring more about how the world perceives you. And as a result, you avoid the people you think will disrupt the value in your life. And again, Those are people that were made in the image of God that God paid a price for in Christ Jesus. We all do this. We all crave 
glory. And as a result, this group, we're giving too much glory to other people in hopes that their lives would be elevated. And we expend an incredible amount of energy to lifestyle people pleasures that we think will elevate the quality of our life. And when we do this, we, 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 we practice this sin of partiality that James calls us to repent of, and we reinstitute those barriers that Jesus has called us to live. And when we think about the life of Jesus, who was the most glorious person who ever lived, who is the most glorious person, the, the, the exact radiance of God the Father, Hebrew says, who had all the splendors of heaven and all the glory of heaven and all the riches and all the status and all the worth and all the value— And it says he left that. He impoverished himself. He entered into poverty and he had no fancy status and no killer resume. He had no popularity and he wasn't striving for success. Yet he was despised and rejected, yet completely approved, affirmed, and loved by the Father. And he showed us. He revealed to us that you're not going to find the life that you desperately crave in experiencing uh, status and worth and and elevated image and money and, and cars and materials and possessions. You're not going to find it in the way that people perceive you or think about you. You're going to find it in knowing that you're deeply loved by God the Father and that all of your worth, all of your identity, and all of your purpose is firmly planted in the person of Christ. You see, what makes the gospel such good news, what makes the gospel so good is that God saved you despite you. Uh, In other words, that, that God, when he looks down on your life and he considers all the things that you've done, and he considers every single moment of your life where you failed to love him and, and, and you were attempting to elevate your life and you were practicing all sorts of prejudices and all sorts of injustices and you were doing everything completely wrong and that by maybe your standards, you're not worthy of being loved. God looks down on you and says uh, that he loves you, that he wants you in his family, that he's for you and he doesn't qualify you based on anything you've done, past, present, or future. Rather, because he is so unified within himself and his attribute is love, he pursues you from love and for love. And he doesn't qualify your life based on what you've done or haven't done. He's not impartial towards you. He is consistently loving towards you. And this makes the gospel so good is that when God looks down on you, he's not moved towards indifference. He, he, he's not moved towards indifference because of your background, your economic status, or your resume. He, he's not swayed by your addiction. He's not swayed by your brokenness. Rather, love moves him towards you. And his mercy triumphs over any judgment that you have over yourself. This is what makes the gospel such good news is that God would come down to us in the flesh and the people that we have might have made distinctions with, that we have might have placed out of our lives, uh, the people that we have pushed to the margins, the people that we have qualified or set up barriers towards, God comes and tears all those down so that you and I can be reconciled to him and enter into a life-giving relationship of love, grace, and mercy. So what does this mean for us? What do we do with this? 
I believe the first thing that we need to do is, is that we need to remember who you are in Christ Jesus. You need to remember what Jesus has done. Uh, in James chapter 1, James calls us to, to look into the, the perfect law of liberty. And he describes the law as a mirror. And I love this illustration because when we look at the mirror, when we look at the word of God, it shows us who we are. It shows us who God has called us to be. And, and we need to look at this mirror often because we forget who God is and what he's done for us. Uh, we need to look at this mirror often because we need to remember who Jesus is and, and what he's done for us. Because if we don't, we'll give way to forgetfulness and forgetfulness will breed all sorts of sin. And in this case, partiality towards others, partiality towards the things of God, partiality towards God himself. But when we look at the mirror, when we look at the word of God, we are reminded of who God is and what he's done for us. We are reminded that Jesus has died for us, that even while we were still sinners, he died for us and reconciled us to himself and has bestowed grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. And he qualifies us. He gives us this eternal inheritance. We are given residence in the kingdom of God, not because of what you've done or haven't done, but because of what Jesus has done for for you. And this awakens a life of faith and love that moves us to love and live the way God has called us to. If you're struggling living the life of faith and love, look into the mirror. Look into the word of God. Remind yourself of who God is and what he's done for you. And your identity in Christ will come back to the surface. And you will live from that place of love, for love. The second thing that uh, we're called to do is repent. Repent. If you have found yourself practicing partiality, the scriptures call you to repent. Maybe you were driving down the road and you saw a homeless person and you made an assumption about their lifestyle and why they are the way they are and you begin to qualify their life based on external considerations. God calls you to repent. Maybe you see a person and you begin to make assumptions about them because of their skin color because of the way they carry themselves. And you begin to use that as the marker by which you do life with them. God calls you to repent. Maybe you only invite certain people to hang out with you uh, because you like them and you get along with them. And, and, and instead of welcoming other people into your community, you close them off. God calls you to repent. And it's this constant rhythm, this lifestyle of repentance, because if we don't, we'll continue to harden our hearts to this elusive sin of partiality. And remember, partiality is so sneaky. It's so elusive. It's so deadly because it masquerades as love. It masquerades wearing this, the, the, the dress that love wears. It's, it's qualifying people, whether we know it or not, and loving them because of, of, of how we think about them or, or, or how we perceive them. And if we're not careful, this can become such a normal rhythm in our lives that when it goes unchecked, it will lead to the most extreme, horrific acts of racism, prejudice, uh, that, that we've seen. When it goes unchecked, it leads to all sorts of cliques and exclusive friend groups uh, that, re, that shows people, if that's what God's like, then I don't want to serve him. I don't want to follow him. 
And so we're called to repent because God is not impartial. God is not divided within himself. And we're called to model that same unity, not only with God, but with our horizontal relationships. And when we don't, we begin to harden our hearts more and more and more. Convinced that, well, there's nothing wrong with us. God calls us to repent. Next, God calls you to receive. Receive what? Receive his love. Receive his love that that covers a multitude of sins. Receive a love that hardens the most hard, that softens the most hardened hearts. Receive his love that is capable of renewing you and transforming you and making you more like Jesus. Receive this love that moves you in the direction of people, not away. Receive this love that walks towards your neighbor not away. Receive this love that was poured out on Calvary for you. Remember who you are in Christ Jesus. Repent of any partiality that you've practiced and receive the love God has poured out for you. So as we come to the table and we worship God in communion on the night that Jesus was betrayed and handed over to be crucified, we see this wonderful, I mean, this wonderful example of of the impartial life that Jesus led when he has a table set with his closest followers. And when Jesus looks at them, he does not qualify or call his followers based off what they can do for him because they couldn't do much uh, except cause a lot of problems. Um, And and Jesus was willing to go that far because love knows no end. And he looks at the Roman tax collector and he looks at uh, the uh, crazy far left uh, zealot and he looks at the far right extremist and he looks at this person he's caught out of this, this lifestyle and they're all in different camps and uh, different ideas and yet uh, they're united by this common denominator that the reason they're sitting at the table is because Jesus is at the table uh, and, and the, re- the, the reason they're, they're, they're living like family is because Jesus has died to make them family. And the reason why they can sit next to one another and and, and there's no barrier, uh, there's no glass shield, there's nothing in between them is because Jesus has died to tear down every single barrier so that we can enter into a life of unity and love for one another. So that we don't qualify people based off uh, their, 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 their skin color or their background. We don't qualify or let people into our lives best based on how cool they are or how weird they are. Rather, we make this rugged commitment to one another in Christ Jesus because Christ has made this rugged commitment to us. And he has chased us down, arrested us with his love, and called us into his family. And now we're called to represent that to the rest of the world. And so that's my heart for this church and for this community is that the world would be able to look down on us. The world would be able to look at us in this community and say they would know us by our love for one another. They would know us by how far and how deep we go with one another. They would know us by how strange and diverse we are. They would know us by how different we are, yet united in Christ. And as long as this church exists, and as long as God graces us with the the privilege to gather and be his community, that is the community that we're going to strive for. And listen, it will be incredibly difficult. It already is. It will be incredibly hard, and it will make you so uncomfortable. But it's worth it. 
It's worth representing the diverse kingdom of God and the church that he's called us to be. As long as we dive in and remember the truth of scripture, repent of any prejudices and favoritism and partiality that we practice in our heart and receive his love. I really believe that our best days are ahead of us and and we're going to see such an incredible, even as we already are, continuing to see an incredible diverse community that represents the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus takes the the, the blood and uh, the, the, uh, the wine and the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you so that you can be made whole and united with one another. And this is my blood that is poured out for all of your sins. Today we're talking about that sin of partiality that removes the power that sin has over your life and that you can walk in newness of life and in freedom in me. Come and receive this. And so Paul, when he gives uh, these prescriptions for communion, uh, I I love uh, that he says to empty yourself, to empty yourself of any sin that you're clinging to, to empty yourself of any uh, sin that that you've, you've given yourself over to and come receive the body and the blood of Jesus. And in doing so, uh, as we call our minds to remember who he is and what he's done for us, we, we can experience and walk uh, more in the power that he's made available for us. So, so as you come, ask the Holy Spirit to help you examine your heart. Where have you practiced favoritism? We've all done it. Where have you practiced partiality this week? Where have you judged someone something based off their external circumstances instead of who God has called them to be. And would you ask the Lord, would you confess that to the Lord, would you repent and ask him to help you walk in love and faith towards all neighbors the way that God has come to us and shown us his great love.